So I invite you to open up Revelation chapter 1. And I want to read together verses 9 to 20. If you don't have a Bible, it'll be on the screen behind me. Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters." In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen and those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. The book of Revelation cannot be understood apart from its Old Testament Foundation, and in particular, its foundation in the Old Testament prophets. It would be like trying to make sense of a great novel by only reading the last chapter. There is hardly a vision, an image, a character, a theme, or a phrase in Revelation that has not been seen or heard before in the pages of the Old Testament. In fact, Revelation contains more. Old Testament allusions than every other New Testament book combined. It is estimated that as many as 278 of the total 404 verses in Revelation, that is nearly 70% of its verses, contain references to Old Testament texts and that there are over 500 Old Testament allusions in total. The serpent, the beasts, the plagues, the witnesses, the four living creatures, the throne, Babylon, Jerusalem, the trumpet, the books, the tree of life, all of these have been seen before. And none of them can be understood apart from a certain familiarity with the Old Testament context out of which they arise. And today's passage is certainly no exception. You see, John views himself as the last of the prophets, the last prophet living in these last days, 
the last in a long line of holy men who saw great mysteries and communicated them to the people of God. This is evident in three ways. First, it is evident in the way that John repeatedly refers to himself, not as an apostle, but as a prophet. He refers to this book as a prophecy. And he refers to his call to prophesy. Second, it is evident in the way that John describes his prophetic commission in today's passage. The command found in verses 11 and 19 to write the things that you have seen and to communicate them to the people of God parallels the prophetic commissions given to Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Habakkuk. But thirdly, that John sees himself as the last prophet living in the, in the last days and as the heir of all of the prophets before him can be seen especially in the way that he views himself as the heir of the prophet Daniel. Trying to read Revelation apart from a certain knowledge of the book of Daniel would be like trying to read a book in a foreign language. John's reliance upon the prophecy of Daniel is evident at the very beginning of Revelation and again at the very end. For instance, let's take Daniel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, it'll be on the screen behind you, and compare it with Revelation 1.1. Daniel chapter 2 records the dream that God gave to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, which Daniel interpreted of a statue with four composite elements representing four successive world empires, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Then a stone that is cut without human hands comes and shatters that statue into pieces which are then blown away by the wind and that stone then grows into a great mountain that fills the whole earth. And according to Daniel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that stone is the kingdom of God which will destroy all of the kingdoms of this earth and will endure forever. And in Daniel chapter 2, 28 and 29, Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar that there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after these things, after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. Okay? Now take that and compare it to Revelation 1.1. The book begins like this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. I want you to note that in both of those passages, Daniel 2, 28 and 29, Revelation 1, 1, the God of heaven is revealing mysteries to his prophet. He is revealing mysteries by means of visions. That is, he is showing or signifying, same word used in Revelation 1, 1 as in Daniel 2, 29, rather than merely telling. He's showing, not merely telling. And thirdly, he is showing him what will take place after these things. But, in Daniel 2, the vision concerns what will take place in the latter days, 
While in Revelation, the vision concerns what will take place, look at verses 1 and 3, soon, verse 1, for the time is near, verse 3. Then at the end of Daniel's life, Daniel chapter 12, having received all of these visions throughout the chapters, Daniel receives this instruction from the angel. The angel tells him, but you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. So I've given you these visions, close them up and seal them until the time of the end. When we get to the end of Revelation, John receives a completely opposite instruction from the angel. 22.10, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Why? For the time is near. When you consider that every vision in the book of Daniel is related to that first vision, the succession of world empires, of beasts, of kings who persecute the people of God that culminates in the coming of the Messiah, the king and his everlasting kingdom. And yet for Daniel, that time was far off, the time of the end, the latter days. And then you consider that the content of Revelation is exactly the same using the exact same images, and yet for John, the time was soon, at hand, near. I think John's frame of reference becomes clear. John sees himself as the last prophet of the last days, writing to the true Israel of God. He is the new covenant counterpart to the old covenant prophets, in particular, the prophet Daniel. And he is telling the people of God that what Daniel prophesied would, would take place in the latter days has now happened and is happening. It has begun to take place in the first coming of Jesus Christ. And in these last days between the first coming and second coming, what Daniel saw so long ago is now unfolding before your very eyes. The last days are here. The kingdom of God has arrived. The tribulation is now. The beast is here and he is at war with the saints. And John's prophetic task is to call the saints, the church, to a patient endurance until the Ancient of Days comes and hands down judgment on behalf of the saints of the Most High, at which time the saints will possess the kingdom forever and ever. Those are almost entirely quotations from Daniel 7. And you will find them again in Revelation. This is why John introduces himself in verse 9 with these words. I, John, your brother and your partner in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the patient endurance which are in Jesus. These are the last days. The last age before the end from Christ's ascension to his descension, first coming to second coming. This is the age when the kingdoms of this world are becoming the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. These are the days of tribulation. These are the days of the beast. These are the days of war upon the saints of the Most High. And John wants us to see this. God wants us to see this, which is precisely why all of the visions that are to come in Revelation are preceded by this one vision of the heavenly Son of Man from Daniel 7. 
The same Son of Man whom Daniel saw ascending on the clouds of heaven and appearing before the Ancient of Days. Jesus is that Son of Man and John sees him in all of his resplendent glory. In Daniel seven thirteen to 14, we read this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people and nations and languages, every tribe, tongue, people, nation, shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one which shall not be destroyed. That is not Revelation. That's Daniel. Now, I take that vision in Daniel 7 to be what happened when the crucified and risen Lord Jesus ascended through the clouds to the right hand of the majesty of God, and all authority on heaven and on earth was given to him. But now... The risen and exalted Christ to whom was given all authority in heaven and on earth. And by the way, the keys of death and hell. He has come to John with a message of salvation and of judgment in these last days. And with a call to perseverance and to the purity of the church. So that's what we're reading today. That's what we're studying. That's what this passage is. It is a vision of the Son of Man from Daniel chapter 7, but now from the perspective of fulfillment. He has ascended on the clouds. He has appeared before the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days has given him dominion and authority over all the nations of the earth. And there are people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation who bow the knee before him and call him Lord all over the world. The kingdom of God is growing. So this is a message for the church from the exalted Son of Man. We would do well to heed it. So let's begin this morning by taking a look at the context of the vision, which is found in verses 9 through 11. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. So John begins by identifying with the congregations to whom he is writing by calling himself their brother and their partner in the tribulation. We're in the tribulation According to John, I'm your partner in the tribulation, he says. I'm your partner in the kingdom. And I am your partner in the patient endurance which are in Jesus. Now this is so very important because it establishes that John writes to them not as a stranger to sufferings, but as a fellow partaker of them who is enduring the same trials, the same tribulations as they were. Now I want you to imagine if I were to tomorrow morning were to sit down and were to write a letter to the churches of Syria. And from my safe, secure, air-conditioned office, sitting in my 
cozy leather office chair surrounded by my, my scrupulously alphabetized books. I sit down to write an exhortation to the churches of Syria to remain faithful in their testimony to Christ when ISIS sweeps through their villages and beheads or crucifies everyone who names the name of Christ. I want you to imagine how that would be received. If I were to warn them of the eternal consequences of succumbing to the persecution and taking the mark of the beast in order to save their own lives and the lives of their family, it would sound a little hollow, wouldn't it? In fact, I have no right whatsoever to speak to the churches of Syria or to the churches of Cuba when I have no share in their suffering and when I am not a partner in their tribulation. But John was. He was a sharer in their sufferings and he was a partner in their tribulation and he was writing to remind them of their mutual share in the kingdom of God and in their patient endurance, which are in Jesus. And make no mistake, those three realities, tribulation, kingdom, and perseverance, they all belong together to the church in this age. You cannot separate one from the other. Every church, including this one, is a partner in the tribulation. Now I remind you of what I mentioned in the introductory sermon about three weeks ago. That the dragon makes war on the saints in different ways. For some, he unleashes his beast to persecute the saints and to put them to death. Like ISIS in the Syrian churches and the churches of northern Iraq. But for others, he he unleashes the prostitute who lures the saints into her tent and tempts them to compromise with the world. Either one is tribulation. And either one is a temptation for you to deny the faith. I may not be able to write a letter to the churches of Syria because I don't have much experience with the beast. But I know the wiles of the prostitute. And so do you. And I could write a letter to the American church about the dangers inherent in living in Babylon like we do with its temptations to abandon Christ for the passing pleasures of sin and for the deceitfulness of wealth and of comfort. Every church in this age is a partner in the tribulation in different ways, at different times, in different places, but all geared towards the same goal. To have you take the mark and to bow before the beast rather than remain faithful to Christ. Every church in this age is a partner in the kingdom and all of the glorious inheritance that belongs to it. And every church in this age is called to faithful endurance by grace through faith in the power of Jesus. Well, the tribulation finds John on the island of Patmos. He says because of his faithful witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Patmos was a small island. It's only about 13 square miles in the Aegean Sea, about 65 miles southwest of Ephesus, which was on the coast of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Now, you should not entertain the image in your mind of John living on a deserted island, 
dwelling in a cave. That would not be accurate. Patmos was well inhabited in the first century. It was large enough to have temples to Apollos and Artemis. Precisely what were the conditions of John's exile there on Patmos, we do not know. Some, some early church literature suggests that he was sentenced to hard labor in a rock quarry. But he would have been over 80 years old at this time, so that seems a little unlikely, though not impossible. At any rate, John was there, he says, because he was boldly proclaiming the gospel and refusing to be silent. And in verse 10, he says that he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day when he heard behind him a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet. Now, the Lord's day is a reference to Sunday, the first day of the week, which from the very beginning, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Christians began to sanctify as a new covenant Sabbath, a day on which they would gather for worship and fellowship and the word and a weekly celebration of the, of the supper and of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, whether John was alone or with other believers on this particular Lord's Day, we don't know. But he says this, he says, I was in the Spirit, which seems to be, at least based As we said in the introduction, it's going to be a common theme. We've got to go back to the Old Testament to understand what John's saying. It seems to be based on texts like Ezekiel 2.2 and 3.12 and and other places in, in especially the prophet Ezekiel, some kind of ecstatic trance in which he received the visions. Now the voice like a trumpet instructs John to write down all that he saw in a book and to send it to the seven churches of Asia Minor. That book that John was instructed to write is what we know as Revelation. These seven churches were located in a rough geographic circle on the, in the western side of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And the best way to understand what's going on here is to see these churches as real churches in real places, we'll talk about that next week, but as representative of the church living in the last days. Now I say that because not only is the number seven used throughout Revelation to symbolize the idea of perfection and completion, you think about the seven spirits of God, well there are not seven spirits of God, there is one Holy Spirit, but he is infinite in all of his perfections, he is complete in all of his glory and deity. So John sees him as the seven spirits of God. I think the same thing's true here. There were more than seven churches in Asia Minor. But John chooses, or rather Jesus, chooses these seven in order that they would represent the totality of the church living in these last days between the first and the second coming of Christ. And again, as we will see next week, every church is faced with unique trials and temptations, and every church responds differently to these tribulations. Some respond with greater faithfulness, and some respond with lesser faithfulness. So in this way, the book of Revelation is able to address every real church at every age and in every location since Christ ascended and since the revelation was given. The next seven letters are messages not just to the first century churches of Ephesus, Smyrna, Thyatira, Pergamum, and so on and so forth. They are messages to First Baptist Nixa, and we are to receive them as such. But more on that next week. Let's move now 
to the content of the vision in verses 13 to 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held the seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now the images in this passage are based upon images that are found in Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Zechariah. We're not seeing anything in this passage that we have not seen before in the pages of the Old Testament prophets. Only now, we're seeing what they saw as through a glass dimly much more clearly because we see it through the perspective of the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Once again, John is the last of the prophets prophesying to the church in these last days. Well, the first thing that John sees when he turns around is seven golden lampstands. Now, when you think of lampstands, you should not picture that ugly thing that is in the corner of your grandmother's living room. It wasn't like that. These were Jewish menorahs, okay? One stem with seven, three branches on each side and one central, seven lamps total. The image comes from Zechariah 4, where Israel is pictured as a single menorah. And the seven lamps on the lampstand in Zechariah's vision represent the Holy Spirit, by whose power the lampstand shines forth. And in Zechariah's day, and in Zechariah 4, the Spirit is there granting to Israel the power to rebuild the temple. Well, in Revelation, John sees not one, but seven lampstands. And the lampstands, according to verse 20, are the seven churches. So the lampstands represent the churches, the church. The implication is this. Zechariah saw a lampstand, represented Israel. John sees lampstands representing the churches, represents the new Israel. The true Israel of God, which is the new covenant church comprised of both Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, all who are united to Christ by faith. We are the new covenant people of God, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, God is using us to build his temple, of which every one of you are living stones. This temple in which God dwells by his spirit, this temple which is built upon the foundation of the prophets and the apostles with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Ephesians 2, 20 to 22, read it. John then sees one like a son of man, which again comes from Daniel 7, 13 and 14. And he is standing in the midst of the lampstands, which signifies Jesus' active, ongoing, attentive presence among his churches. Just like he said, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in their midst. He's in the midst of his lampstands. He's here. What does he do among his churches? Well, the the verses that follow, the descriptions that follow in verses 13 to 16 can really be divided into three categories. 
each representing a distinctive role that Jesus fulfills with regard to his church, that of priest, that of king, and that of judge. In verse 13, Jesus is described as clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. An image that comes from Daniel 10.5 and refers to the sacred garments worn by the high priest. Exodus 28 and 29. The idea seems to be that as the priests of the old covenant tended to the lampstands in the old covenant temple, they trimmed the wicks, they made sure that the light never went out. So does Jesus, as the great high priest of the new covenant, tend to the lampstands, which are the churches. Jesus, the great high priest of the new covenant temple, which is the church, trims the lamps. He purifies, refines, he sanctifies his church in order that we may continue to shine forth with the glory of God into the darkness of the world. In verse 14, it says that the hairs of his head were like white, like white wool, like snow, which picks up the imagery of the Ancient of Days from Daniel 7, 9 and speaks to the divine wisdom which Jesus possesses to judge. His eyes were like a flame of fire, comes from Daniel 10.6, and speaks to the ability that Jesus possesses to see through our outward appearance in order to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the hearts. Man sees the outward appearance, but God, he looks upon the heart, and Jesus with his flames, his eyes like flames of fire, is is able to burn through, to pierce through our masks and our facades and our hypocrisies, and to unveil and to lay bare the motives and the desires of our hearts. Verse 15, John says that his feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, which also comes from Daniel 10.6. And speaks to his absolute purity and righteousness. The feet of the Son of Man have tread through the furnace of suffering and have emerged with a deep, radiant gleam. Reminds us of Hebrews 5.8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through that which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to those who obey him. His voice was like the roar of many waters, comes from Ezekiel 1, 24 and 43, 2, speaks to his power and his majesty, the authority of his word. Finally, in verse 16, John says that in his right hand, he held the seven stars. What are they? Well, verse 20, Jesus says that those seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches. Now, The meaning of that statement, the relationship of these angels to the churches, is something of a mystery. And we will begin to unpack that next week. Because each of the seven letters are written to the angel of the church at Ephesus. So if you want me to unfold that mystery a little bit, you have to wait till next week. Come on back and we'll unpack it. For right now, here's what you need to know. Those seven stars, they're in his hand which means that Jesus commands the angelic host of heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Son. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, probably based on Isaiah 11.4 and 49.2, 
It's picked up again in Revelation 19.15 when Jesus returns as the rider on the white horse to execute judgment and to pour out wrath upon the earth. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. It's probably an allusion to Isaiah 60 and again speaks to the majesty and the glory of Jesus as king. So what do you get when you put all of these images together? You see the unveiled glory of the Son of Man, who by His Spirit is present among His churches. He is present to sanctify them as their priest and to rule over them as their king and their judge. If you want a glimpse of what that looks like in actual churches, we're going to get that glimpse in these seven letters to the seven churches where you will see Jesus presiding over his church as priest and king and judge. Well, how does John, the beloved disciple, the member of the inner circle of Jesus' followers, the one who sat beside Jesus at the Last Supper, the man who spent more time with and knew Jesus better than any man who has ever lived on the face of the earth with the sole perception, perhaps, of Peter? How does he respond when after 60 years, he sees Jesus again? Falls in his face before him. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. You see... The glory of Jesus is such that no amount of familiarity with him can prepare you to meet him when his majesty is unveiled. When his glory shines forth in all of its brilliance, I don't care how long you've walked with him, you will have the same reaction. In eternal ages to come, you will never tire of seeing him. Which is precisely why worship is the eternal vocation of the redeemed. Sometimes I catch myself worrying that I will grow bored in heaven. I could pretend that that's not true, but that would be a lie. I mean, eternity is a really, really, really long time. To sing, open the eyes of my heart. But it bothers me that it worries me. Because I know that I should delight in the thought of an eternity in the presence of Christ. But that fear of growing bored and familiar with the unveiled majesty of the glory of Christ is an unfounded fear for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that worship will not feel like a duty or a decision in that day. When I see him, as John says in 1 John 3, 2, as he is, worship mixed with reverence and awestruck joy will be the immediate and irresistible impulse of every atom of my being. And it will be the only thing that satisfies my soul with the deepest joy imaginable. Well, at any rate, Jesus does not leave his beloved disciple quivering in fear. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. 
I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Now, it's clear from the form of these words and how they fit with what came before that Jesus intends this to be a word of comfort and assurance. He intends to comfort John and to alleviate his fears with this self-identification. So how do they do that? Well, the Son of Man gives three reasons why his servants should not fear and therefore why we should not fear. First, he emphasizes his deity. He is the first and the last, which points to his eternal sovereignty. The first and the last is a phrase used in Isaiah 41.4, to refer to the Lord God of Israel, the Lord Jehovah. And it's used in Revelation 1.8 to refer to God the Father. The implication is that Jesus possesses the same eternal sovereignty as the Father. Because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The book of Revelation will not suffer the perversions of the Jehovah's Witnesses and of the Mormons who try to place Jesus in a different category from the Father. You cannot read Revelation and be left in any doubts as to the deity of Christ. Jesus is the eternally sovereign, divine Son of God, and He reigns as Lord of history as the first and the last. Secondly, He points to His victory. He identifies Himself as the one who has triumphed over death. He is the living one who died and is alive forevermore. This is Christ's ultimate triumph. He has conquered sin by his atoning death upon the cross. And he has conquered death and hell by his glorious resurrection on the third day. This is the summit, the apex of Christ's glory. This is the the blazing center of the Christian faith. This is what we go into living rooms in Cuba and try to show people and reveal people in the power of the Holy Spirit. We determine to know nothing among them except Christ and Him crucified. He was dead, and He is dead no longer, but rather He is alive forevermore. Jesus Christ, the divine Son of God, became man and died in the place of sinners, bearing our sin and our guilt and our shame and suffering the wrath of God which was due unto us for our sins in our place as our substitute. And he was raised in triumph over the grave on the third day unto everlasting life and glory. That's our message. That's the theme of our song. That's what we go to Cuba to declare and what we go to Nicaragua to declare and what you ought to tell your neighbors and what you ought to make sure that your children are seeing in your lives day in and day out. It's our theme. It's our hope. Thirdly, he points to his sovereignty. He holds the keys of death and Hades. The image is one of prison break. Jesus broke the chains of death, tore the bars away from the dungeon cell, and demanded the keys of the prison, which Satan was obliged to hand over. And now he possesses absolute authority to open the cell of anyone whom he pleases. For the Son of Man, he says in John 5.21, has life 
in himself. And he gives life to whomever he wishes. Stunning sovereignty. Jesus possesses total authority to bring out of death and into life. Out of darkness and into light. Out of bondage and into freedom. He is utterly sovereign over salvation and judgment. Not you, not me, not sinners, no one, Jesus. And it is on the basis of his deity, his victory, and his sovereignty that the Son of Man commands John again, write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Now again, you may see the time frame that pervades all of Revelation. This is not a message about the future only, but about the past and the present and the future. And then he provides us with an interpretation of two of the images in this vision. Verse 20. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Now those two figures of the lampstands and the churches will feature prominently in the seven letters of Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. The image of the lampstands is clear enough. They're the churches. And I will hold off on explaining the seven stars, which are the seven angels of the seven churches, until next week. What I want to do this morning, by way of conclusion, is to ask why this message appears at the beginning of Revelation. And what effect Jesus intends for it to have upon us, its recipients and hearers. I think that this vision of the Son of Man that headlines this book is intended to make us ready to die. I think that's it. I think this vision is given to the church, preserved for 2,000 years, and comes to us today in order to prepare you to die in faith. And I say that with no degree of exaggeration. It, It is not merely for rhetorical effect. This is precisely the point of the book. Everywhere in this book, the saints are being put to death. They are as sheep to be slaughtered all day long. Revelation is a call to persevere unto the death. The dragon has declared war upon the people of God. The beast seeks to destroy them. The prostitute seeks to entice and then to devour them. And Revelation is one massive call to persevere through the tribulation of this age unto the death and then to receive the crown of life. So who is this that calls me to die for him? Who can command such loyalty that I would rather suffer persecution and the pains of death than to deny and denounce him? Who is this who calls me to die of cancer in faith and in joy rather than in bitterness and in fear? Knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Who can ask that of you? I plead with you to not view the book of Revelation as theoretical. 
They're dying. We're dying. There is death and suffering and tribulation and temptation all around us. And Jesus commands your loyalty through it all. He calls for it. What are you going to do when grief overwhelms you like a flood? What are you going to do? How will you not drown? You need to know who holds the keys. You've got to see who holds the keys and what he offers to those who persevere. It is the Son of Man whose eyes are a flame of fire, whose voice is like the roar of many waters, whose words are a double-edged sword, the living one who died and is alive forevermore. O comfortable Christians, with your fine jobs and your nice families and your big houses and two-car garages and insurance policies and paid vacation days and growing 401ks. Me. Our life and our destiny boils down to this one question. Does the Son of Man command your loyalty unto the death? Does he command your affections and your allegiance such that you will follow him through tribulations and through sufferings, whatever form it takes, to the very end? The Son of Man is calling his church to a courageous faith and a steadfast perseverance. And that's why he shows himself to you. That's why he calls out and has for 2,000 years anytime this text has been preached. I am the first and the last. The living one who died and is alive forevermore. And I hold the keys of death and hell. Will you follow me?